I'm Travis Bader, and this is the Silver Core Podcast. Join me as I discuss matters related to hunting, fishing, and outdoor pursuits with the people and businesses that comprise the community. If you're new to Silver Core, be sure to check out our website, www.silvercore.ca, where you can learn more about courses, services, and products that we offer, as well as how you can join the Silver Core Club, which includes 10 million in North America-wide liability insurance to ensure you are properly covered during your outdoor adventures. This is the last week to get your name in to win the firefighter training package with the training division in Texas. If you want to be a firefighter, or if you know someone who does, this package is worth over $6,000 and it is absolutely free to enter. Check out silvercore.ca for full details. All right, I'm sitting down with Jason Budd, who is back by popular demand from the Silvercore podcast listeners. Jason, you know this, some of our listeners might not, but you know, we put the podcast in the audio format for people to listen to while they're driving or doing whatever, they can play it in the background, but I also put a version on YouTube and you have the distinction of having our most viewed Silvercore podcast with a current count. I think we're about 23,000 views on the last episode we did. So congratulations, Jason. Well, you know, Trav, um, I was getting constant text messages every time we moved up a few thousand from you. So <laughs> I think you're more excited than I was. Yeah, so. I was pretty excited. Yeah. Yeah. I, so. I don't know. Um, the feedback we're getting on it was fantastic too. I mean, people were listening through with a critical ear and I, I'm sure the subject matter probably somehow hit in YouTube a little bit because we were talking about SAS selection and the, uh, the time in the British army. And, uh, talking about that afterwards, you had some other pretty cool stories and then thank you very much for agreeing to come on back and, uh, and share some of these. One of the, um, questions that actually came up was about wearing your own footwear while doing selection. And some guys like, no, nah, that's BS. You can't wear your own footwear while you're doing selection. So yeah, you know, you, you've talked about that one aspect of the only thing I went on selection with was, um, I think the Bergen and, and my socks that were issued, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Maybe the water bottles. But one thing that I stood out for me from the start with the British army was that we actually could purchase our own gear in mm. a lot of aspects because a lot of the, the, the British equipment was robust and meant to last, which meant it was heavy, mm. right? So a lot of times we could supplement that with our own day sacks, um, our own al altering or, or webbing or belt kit or altering even our Bergens and right. things like that. So, I mean, that was quite common within that I appreciated, uh, with going, you know, within the British infantry in my regiment. I know other regiments are more stricter than others, but sure. it was very common for myself in the Highlanders and then Four Scots was that a lot of what we bought, we could use in the field where I remember being, you know, like in, in the Canadian army where that wasn't necessarily promoted. A little bit different, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a little bit different, you know, and you know, not, you know, I have friends in the PPCLI and people, for, you know, that's the, uh, you know, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, I have friends in the RCR, Royal Canadian Regiment, and those two regiments are completely different and, and from hearing the stories of what they were allowed to use, issued, non-issued. And that brings up a, a, a point, Trav, um, 
that a lot of my friends and family from the last podcast that didn't have the military environment said that we used too many acronyms. Right. So we're going to have to try and, and, and work around that. So when I say PPCLI, I'm like, Princess Patricia's Canadian in light infantry. Right? right. So I think we'll just be mindful of that. As we work on through. Work on through it. Yeah. Well, you know, off air here, we're talking about a couple of pretty cool stories and I think there's a way we can segue into it. If we talk about, um, senior Brecken. Mm-hmm. So you were on a platoon sergeant battle course. That'd be senior Brecken. Is that? Yeah, that's correct. We talked about in the last podcast where I did my junior Brecken, which is the section commander's battle course. Mm. And I also did senior Brecken, but I didn't really get into it too much. But both of those courses are, are career courses for the British infantry. Mm. And you can specialize, you know, you can go to mortars, you can go to, uh, anti-tank, snipers, recce, and they all have their section commander courses as well. But the gateway for promotion and advancement in the, in the infantry really is the rifle company, junior Brecken, senior Brecken. Okay. It is streamlined for your career advancement. Okay. And it's actually the quicker way of going through it. So a lot of the guys that would go to the support companies, which is where the anti-tank and mortars are, the guys would come back into the rifle stream to do their career courses. Interesting. Okay. Just like if you went to the depot, I said, I went to the depot, which is the recruit training school, ITC Catrick, if you're training Catrick, where that is where all the British recruits for the infantry are trained. That is part of your career advancement really. Mm. Cause you need those external write-ups, um, reports on yourself. But in order to get there, you have to do junior bracket. So if you did section matter course in let's say any tank, that won't allow you to teach at the depot. Got it. Right. Got so it. So it's the same for us with senior bracket. So I think it's about 20, it's 20 years old now, but there was a YouTube series called Battle Stripes. Okay. And it's the old way or the old course for senior Brecken. I've seen that one. Yeah. So that, that was a lot of that, that course was just like realistic and geared towards like survival. Sure. <laughs> like surviving the course. Yeah. Um, the emphasis definitely changed by the time I was rolling around juniors and senior Brecken where they were really trying to educate us and get that critical thinking involved, but still had the resilience and the robustness of the core principles of, of that, of that training. Right. Okay. So yeah, senior Brecken that's based in Brecken, obviously we call it infantry training center Brecken and they run numerous elements of this career leadership aspect of the training. They run, as we talked about the section commander's battle course. Mm. And they also do the skill at arms course prior to that. So you do seven weeks of basically being able to teach every single weapon system in the British army. So right. they become subject matter experts of that. And then they move on to their tactics phase, which is junior Brecken, I believe it's eight weeks. Okay. And then, then they go back to the battalions and they end up usually in the depots or wherever teaching. And then, um, usually after that, that's a two year posting that take to the depots. Then they're going to do another, within the next two years, they usually end up going to senior Brecken. Mm. So about anywhere from two to four years after you can end up back down there. But what's interesting, um, which was new for me in order to go on these courses, junior Brecken and senior Brecken, you had to do a pre-course in your battalion. Okay. 
And the pre-courses I found a lot of times were more demanding than the actual courses. It would be like two weeks. Like for example, for junior Brecken, you would be on this two-week course, you'd be taught how to teach lessons. You'd be taught how to deliver orders at the section commander level and bumping one up to platoon sergeant level. And um, fitness, a lot of fitness. Sure. Being evaluated. Yeah. And then you're evaluated. So you could be on junior Brecken or the pre-course for juniors or seniors with maybe 20 other guys. Okay. And you might be competing for three spots. Okay. And it's simply a matrix. They basically score everything and they have the recommendations of who the top candidates are. And then usually those are the ones that get picked to go down. Mm-hmm. So it's a competition from that point on in the battalion for your advancement to keep moving forward, right? So you're competing for those two to three spots each regiment has to go down there. Sounds fun, actually. Uh, it's actually can be stressful, Trav, right? It's a lot oh, of stress. I don't doubt the and, stress. And, and, you know, physically demanding. But sure. what's interesting was um, I was actually deployed to Iraq with my battalion. And a lot of times what happens is, is that when you're on deployments, they still expect the career advancements to keep moving forward. Hmm. So they'll send guys back to go on career courses. So I was up in Alamara, which is the British sector of Iraq. There's Basra and Alamara and Alamara. It's kind of like the British sector of the Marines Fallujah. Mm. It's kind of like where a lot of the fighting was and, um, really intense place to be. But, uh, a group of us, we had two companies up there, Delta company, Bravo company, elements of that, the senior section commanders were sent to Cyprus to do our pre-course with the Royal Highland Fusiliers, which was based there. Cause they were running it. They weren't going to run one in, in Iraq, obviously sure. it wouldn't have worked. So there was a group of us that we were flowing out of Alamara down to Basra, Basra to Cyprus. And then we did our two week pre-course with the Royal Highland Fusiliers. Okay. And Cyprus is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> interesting place. It's, it's a lot of elevation gain where they train, rocky, a lot of, uh, prickly things, uh, pretty robust train to be training in. But I was successful on the pre-course and then I was selected to go down to senior Brecken. So, uh, the guys that weren't successful, they went back to Iraq and then the rest of us were, that were, were sent down to, uh, do junior and senior Brecken. Okay. So that's how I ended up in senior Brecken. This time around, I d- when I did junior Brecken, it was, I just came out of Kosovo. So it was a winter tour. Uh, we did a lot of walking. Uh, the food was a lot better being on tour, believe it or not, than when really? actually in battalion. Yeah. Because... Uh, the budget was higher okay. and they had the, kind of like a lot of natal set meals mm. versus when I was, you know, back in the barracks, we weren't known as, you know, eating the best food. No, you guys weren't. You don't have a reputation. No, for that, we, I think we talked about that, didn't yeah, we? we? do. Yeah. We did. So that's one thing I did suffer a lot on was, um, my fitness for junior Brecken. Okay. The soldiering aspect wasn't it, but we would be doing the two mile assessment, five mile assessment, eight mile assessment three mile assessment. These are all with like 35 to 55 pound, um, gear at the end of each training cycle. Every Friday we'd have to do an assessment. So you're tired. You've been up all night doing your drills or your, your patrols. Right. And then they expect you to do a two mile run with 35 pounds in 21 minutes. Right. Through the training area. Right. For example. Man. So I, I did struggle on that aspect of it on junior Brecken, but by the time I hit senior Brecken, I had a different mindset. I, I had 
still had my SES fitness. Mm-hmm. I also knew what was to expect. So that's one thing that I did do on junior Brecken a lot was Friday, Saturday nights. I'd always stay local with the guys and we'd party a lot. Sure. <laughs> Which doesn't yeah. help your fitness. It right? does not, does <laughs> doesn't it? doesn't help, help your fitness at all, Trav, right? As we know. <laughs> and as you get older, it's harder to process that, yeah, right? Yeah. But on senior Brecken, I would do all my homework. We'd be, be knocked off Friday afternoon. I would do all my homework, all my laundry, all my administration. There was a kebab shop in Brecken that is my favorite one in the entire UK. I'd get a kebab, head back to my barracks, and I'd go to bed. Hmm. And in the morning, I'd get up and I'd go run the SAS routes up in the Beacons. Right. And I'd be, be knocked, I'd be, I'd, I'd say I'd be knocked off. I mean, I'd be done my training myself by, yeah. by noon and I would um, shower. And then my girlfriend at the time stayed in Tewkesbury, which is just down the road. So then I would pick her up, go for dinner, stay over, have Sunday dinner with her folks. And then I'd head back to Brecon Sunday afternoon yeah. and I would be in bed, eight thirty, nine o'clock, ready to go for the week's activities. Mm-hmm. And compared to a lot of the guys, like the, the jocks or the Scots, would drive all the way up to Scotland. So they're rolling in at like midnight, Sunday night, trying to get things done. And then they're, so I had a different, different approach this time around. So I was Smart. really enjoying, I, I didn't really enjoy juniors as much, but I was really having a good time on senior Brecken at the time. Yeah. Right? So I, that's why I think a lot of my, my, my approach was different, which mm. paid dividends on the course. Um, the first part of it is called LFTT, Live Fire Tactical Trainer, okay. seven weeks long. And that has to do with, I mentioned in Junior Brecken, they do the skill at arms course first, right. seven weeks, right? And this course is geared towards planning, running, and conducting live fire movement ranges okay. up to company level. And this is geared towards the platoon commanders and the senior NCOs. You're doing a lot of, we call them templates and traces for, you know, where the, we're going to set your ranges up and then. Right. It's a, there's a lot of work to it. Yeah. I was glad it was done. Mm. And then moving into the tactics. So the tactics is what we call senior Brecken and that's eight weeks long. And it's taught by color sergeants. Okay. So we call them colors. Yeah. So, and, and it's not a derogatory term. Hmm. Uh, for people of color, it's basically a rank that, that was a senior NCO that was there to protect the colors or the flag. Right. Right. So we call them, so it's a senior NCO we call color sergeants. So relating it to Canada, for example, would be a rank between their warrant and, and master warrant officer. Okay. So Britain actually has a rank for it, right? And traditionally those color sergeants are either a CQMS, company quartermaster sergeant. So they look after the gear and the logistics of the company. Mm-hmm. But in the infantry as well, they're also the senior instructors. Okay. So they train junior Brecken, senior Brecken, platoon commander's course, and other courses like that. And it's really important in your advancement that, like I went to the depot as a section commander, I needed that external write-up two years. If I continued in the British Army, I would have had to take or should have taken um, a two-year posting as a color sergeant instructor. And, And actually... I was recommended to come back and work on the platoon commander's course. Okay. Because I had a really good disposition of um, working with the officers and, and- People liked you. You're a likable guy. Yeah, likable guy. So <laughs> that, I think I had interest to go work. And I think it's really important to actually focus on our platoon commanders because they're actually the leaders of 
of our platoons. Mm. And I, as a sergeant, I took it upon myself that it, I had to mentor my platoon commander. I didn't have to tell him what to do. My job was to mentor him and develop him. And I thought that was really important. But one thing that I had a hard time mentoring was if I had an arrogant officer. Right. right? Then it was really hard to mentor. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, carry on and you let them fall on their face. But sure. I, but I, there were few and far between. Mm. Like I had some phenomenal officers as platoon commanders, bosses, right? In my time. I guess the ego can kind of get away on some people. Yeah. At, at, at some point. And then it's, uh, I mean, it's a you whole know, process. Trav, and we all check. have a bit of ego. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, I think as a section commander, we're expected to have that ego. Platoon sergeant, definitely, you need to have that ego. But I think it's, it's, it's healthy, mm. but then it's also important to be humble. Mm. Right. And maybe that ego is the, the confidence that we have in our professional as an ability. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not taking anything away from the non-infantry because they all judge us and just think, you know, the infantry is this and that. But we also had that chip on our shoulder that we were the infantry or the bayonet or the spear of, of the army. Mm. Right. So, um, and I was proud of that. Like I remember on senior, senior Brecken, we're getting, we're on the parade square and we're loading our packs up. And honestly, by the time you had all your gear and your Bergens, mm-hmm probably 75 pounds to 80 pounds easily. Like I couldn't pick it up, Trav. I had to sit on the ground, put my Bergen on, roll over to stand up and then walk to the truck. And then <laughs> they have these all arms skillet arms courses. So, you know, they had the infantry guys going on the skillet arms. Well, they have all arms. So the core guys were going to do these courses so they can teach. And I can remember the sergeant, maybe he was um, an engineer or maybe he was like Remy, which is the raw electronic, mechanical engineers. And he was going by and he just stopped and we're helping ourselves get up. And he's shaking his head and goes, guys, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> right? And I'm like, I don't know how I do it either. Cause we actually left that point and we did a 16 kilometer insurgent tab, which is a march. We call it tab is a tactical advance to battle right. across an impact area. Hmm. An impact area is where the artillery and mortars land and, right. and it's grass and it's wet. And we're walking through this with 75, 80 pound packs on, right? Wow. And, you know, so that was kind of like, I'm, uh, I don't know how I do it either. And, and you know, the, the but joke- But you just do it. Well, the joke is, you know, now people are dealing with VAC, which is Veterans Affairs Canada mm-hmm. or wherever, and they're trying to relate maybe a knee or ankle injury isn't related to our service. And it's like the memes showing <laughs> like this infantryman with- an 80 pound pack, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's going to have an effect somehow later on in the life for oh, sure. For sure. Yeah. Right? Like I'm deaf as a door now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as cr- we know. <laughs> yeah. I cranked your audio here at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Trav, I got hearing aids. Yeah. Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah. 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 I think we were talking about ego and, and I, I think it, just to summarize, I, I mean, part of it is, is healthy, but I think within moderation to be that humble, quiet professional, mm. I think goes a, a long way. For, for me and how I respond and, and responding to others, right? Yeah. And learning as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do think it's important though, to have, you know, like the section commanders and platoon sergeants to have the confidence. So I think a lot of people mistake ego for confidence. Mm. And I think maybe that's the connection we're missing is that you're confident in, in your ability and your skills and, and. Uh, your trade and, and your leadership. And I think that's important. And a lot of times that can get uh, mixed up with ego. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that's 
you know. That's a good perspective. And I guess confidence to the point of not accepting any other options or outside opinions or reasonable persuasion, that's probably when it turns into ego. You know, for sure, Trav, and, and, and we can, we've seen that a lot and we've talked about a lot of that, what we've seen on, on social media mm. and, and people with their experiences. But, um, you know, it, it, this, this isn't new and for me and, and this actually came to light. Like when I did come back to Canada, I, I, I was applying for the RCMP and I was applying in the fire service and people say, you know, with the RCMP is like, why are you going to the fire service? Well, it's the number one part of my resettlement training. They actually covered a lot of the training costs. Mm -hmm. So I did that. But I remember the RCMP saying like, why are you in the fire processes? And I said, well, I need a career when I come back. And what happens if you defer me? Mm -hmm. Then I need to keep moving forward. And he's like, oh yeah, that's a fair one. But that did come up. Like I had a, like a lot of my confidential reports were really um, positive and, and, and showed my attributes that I achieved. Uh, a lot of my references indicated, you know, great leadership and, and sure. skills. And, but they kind of looked at that with ego. And, right. and I had to explain in some of my references too, and say, well, the, it's very confident in his ability and skills is different than ego, but I don't think they could relate that. So it was hard. It was a hard sell. Well, it's a different background too, and it's a different skill set. And so when yeah. they, when it comes across and somebody looks at that, um, I guess in some ways, and I'm not saying the people looking at that were a number two person, but a number two person can look at a number one person and be intimidated and attribute confidence to ego. I, I know where you're going with this, Trav, eh? <laughs> you're talking about the recruiting teams. I get it. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll. I'll, I'll tread lightly on yeah. that one. You know, Trav, um, and I agree, you know, they, they look for like-minded people. And long story short, I, they deferred me for a year and they said, we're going to defer you because we think you need more time to adjust mm -hmm. coming back. And, um, you know, we find maybe your approach is too military right mm -hmm. now. And then the next phone call was Vancouver Fire hiring, hiring me. So, um, and I, I'm very thankful. I believe our journeys are the way they are, they go. Mm -hmm. Um, when our, when the RCMP team reached out to me in a year and said, if I still interested to go to the depot, I said, no, thank you. I've found a good career choice for me, which actually allowed me to move into the outdoor field, which I love so much and mm -hmm. therapy and, uh, work toward being a, a mountain guide yep. and, and maybe looking at some adventure therapy programs down the road. That'd be fantastic. But I, I had, I had a, uh, a thought the other day of all things, Trav, I, I was making a, a tikka masala, yeah. homemade naan bread, nice salad, <laughs> making some cheesecake, a little bit of topping, some whipped cream. And I'm like, man, one of the best things the fire service taught me was how to cook. <laughs> and I go, yeah. had I gone in the RCMP, I'd probably be making craft dinner right now. That's right. Peanut butter <laughs> and jelly, craft dinner. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. But I was just like, I mean, that's something that I, you know, even in Afghanistan, I, I, I the, well, put up one of the pictures was that, you know, we were on hard rations for seven to eight months. Mm. I couldn't, after a month, I couldn't do it. So we were buying potatoes, onions from the locals, oil, we're making fries, we were buying flour, making pancakes. We were doing anything we could to supplement our, our food. Mm -hmm. And there are, there's one picture of me cooking like spam, onions, and potatoes over a mess tin. Hey, spam's not bad. I was diehard against spam until I went to uh, Hawaii and they have uh, spam masubis, they call them. And it's actually pretty good. They do, they deep fry it up in a sauce and put rice, but that's a little bit off topic on this well, one. Well, I mean, I mean, the, the Brits have their corned beef and hash, Ooh. which was horrible. <laughs> well, they reminds they're... me of cat food. Not that I know what cat food tastes <laughs> like, John, but it was, 
So that's why we're supplementing our meals, sure. right? You know, but yeah, so coming back to senior Brecken, the tactics phase is seven weeks long. Yeah. And because I was in that training cycle I was in, we have to do a, we call it, so that we have the SES, Special Air Service, British Special Forces, Fan yes. Dance, which is that 24 kilometer over the Brecken Beacons, down the Roman Road, back over, you have four hours to do it. Mm. Well, there's also a senior Brecken fan dance and it's around the same distance, slightly different route. And that was a very important assessment yeah. for people. And simply it's also an assessment in physical ability, but you also for the potential leaders to be in a leadership role. And I remember one of the color sergeants from my regiment, Tony Rawlson, big shout out to Tony Rawlson. He's yeah. a late entry major now, he's done really well, but he was one of my first platoon sergeants and mentors in the Highlanders. He was our color sergeant down there. Not my personally, but he was in my, my company, senior div. Hmm. And he said, Jace, you got to get in a leadership role. And as luck would have it, I was in a leadership role. I ended up being 51 mortarman number two. So I yeah. had a satchel, the mortar okay. satchel. I'm like, how am I going to excel here? Really hard because they'd have the platoon commander appointment, platoon sergeant appointment, the uh, section commander appointments to ICs. I'm not in a leadership role. I'm just getting assessed on my fitness. Mm. And I think the weight's like 55 pounds. Okay. So we have all our gear for this. And we set off. And I and um, the platoon commander, what's interesting about seniors is that even though it's for the infantry, within the British Army, the SF go on it as well. So there'll be guys from the SAS on it, Pathfinders on it. So the platoon commander was a lad from Hereford, one of the SAS lads. Mm. And um, he had a guy assigned to him as the platoon signaler. So he had his 55 pounds plus the platoon radio, this mm. heavy radio that he's got. And within 500 meters of setting off, this platoon signaler dropped. Okay. Uh, he just couldn't do it. Yeah. So I run over and I grab the, the radio yeah. and I throw it on my pack. I'm like, I got it. So I still have my 51 kit, Good for the mortar you. kit, and I've got the radio and I'm on with, with the platoon commander, this mm -hmm. SAS slot. And, um, off we go and I just stay with him, and we start climbing the fan, mm -hmm. heading up there. And numerous times I had guys, Hey Jace, oh, I can get the radio. No, I got it. I got it. I got yeah. it. And I just stayed on the radio, stayed with me. And I just stayed up with the platoon commander and we both knew, cause we'd been up there so much. We know the routes and we're mm -hmm. just leading both him and I are navigating the platoon through the checkpoints. And then about halfway through, you end up having to go up this three kilometer, like you've come down the penny fan. Yeah. You cross over and I don't know the name of it, but it's like three to four kilometers straight uphill. And they introduce, the staff introduce a stretcher. I believe the stretcher is 300 pounds. Okay. So it's a stretcher with tank tread on it, tank track to get 300 pounds. So wow. that's part of it. Now you need to get the platoon needs to get this 300 pound plus all the other gear up this, right? Yeah. And um, we also had some other platoon weapons. We had a, uh, a general purpose machine gun in Canada, the C6, UK to GPMG. Mm -hmm. We also had the light machine gun weapons. So in UK, it's a Minami, Canada, it's a C9. The 51's in there. Mm -hmm. So the platoon gets a stretcher and the platoon commander goes to me, he's like, Jace, don't get on the stretcher. You got the radio. I'm like, okay. So that's fair. Cause I've had the radio yeah. the whole time. And as the platoon starts moving up, guys are dropping off and the color sergeants are yelling, no weapon systems get left behind. They move forward with the stretcher. Mm -hmm. So I look back and one of the section commanders has two rifles and 
somebody has a the the Minimi or C9 extra mm-hmm. now. Because as guys fall back, they can't keep up. Right. The weapons you got to keep coming forward. So I started taking, like I took a, C, a C9 or Minimi off one of the sector commanders. I took a rifle. I think I ended up with the 51. So I had a, <laughs> I had a Minimi, my rifle, another rifle and the 51. Yeah. And I'm doing this job because I had, still had this SCS fitness and I'm, and I'm training on the, on the, on my weekends for yeah. it. And now I'm actually like, um, well, we can't use his name. You'll beep, you'll beep that out, eh? Yeah, I'll yeah. beep it out. <laughs> so, so the platoon commander, he jumps on, right? Yeah. And now I'm actually leading the platoon up. Mm. And there was one of these, one of the, the, the lead color sergeant in my platoon was from one para and he yells up and he's like, bud. I go, yes, color. He goes, do you want any more gear? I go, I'm good color, right? <laughs> so I, I go up, I lead us up and we, when we level off, we can see the checkpoint and it's about 500 meters away and the boss platoon commander goes, Jace, go, go check us in. So we'll just roll through. So I ran, still got all the gear. I ran, checked us in, got us, uh, signed in to that checkpoint, got the new grid where we were going, gave it to the boss and off we went mm. and we finished it. So I actually got, they get a grade okay. for it. I got it. They usually, they don't grade like as an appointment, they don't grade you. They just grade you on your fitness. Sure. But I got a grade, an A grade. Okay. For doing the fan dance, yeah. which is rare. Usually they just say pass or fail if you weren't in a platoon commander, platoon sergeant role and I ended up getting an A grade. So that was a rarity. I got an A grade for my fitness and leadership sure. within that. So that was on the, the senior fan. So pretty emotional, you. but. Yeah, it'd be a heck of a lot of work. The, you know, we were talking about the training that you did in senior Brecken mm-hmm. and how regimented it was and how proper it was and the advice that you got from Robbie Gilmore. Yeah. So I guess leading into this trap was that all the ranges in the UK were booked because at the time when I, I was on seniors, I believe 2007, okay. January. So they run courses three times a year, January. March and then July or something, right? So I, luck would have it. Here I am again in January on Wales, right? Yeah. Um, but all the Rangers are booked because UK is in Iraq and Afghanistan. So that takes priority. Mm. So what was happening was they were taking the final exercise of seniors in the Batoon Commander's Battle Course and taking us to either Malawi or Kenya. Okay. So our final exercise is four weeks long in the bush. Mm. So it's kind of cool. Considering totally. you go to Brecon or you end up in Malawi, Africa. Yeah. So prior to us going to Malawi, Africa, they brought in a subject matter expert. The company commander did. Right. And when I say, when we talk about the ORBAT, which is the organization, um, how it's structured, there'd be three platoons in senior Brecon and three, three platoons would have roughly about 30 guys each. So there's 90 of us and the staff in this auditorium. And as I, they didn't tell us who the guest speaker was. Mm. So as I walk in. I, you know, visualize, check everything out. And I see that there is this civilian gentleman sitting there and he's older, maybe not at, you know, the, not the, the fittest prime, he could be. Not right? the prime of his life. Not the prime of his life. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there going, man, like, what is this guy going to teach us? Who mm. is this guy? Yeah. Right? And when the company commander stood up to introduce him, they introduced him as Peter McAleese. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the book, No Mean Soldier. Got and, that book, and, yeah. And... And it's interesting book for the guys to read. Yeah. And 
a quick summary of, of Peter was that he joined the British Parachute Regiment, British SAS, and then he went to Zimbabwe, which used to be Rhodesia, mm-hmm. and he fought, I believe, in the Rhodesian SAS. Right. And he wrote a book about his time, and he ended up in, after the war ended, ended up in the South African forces, and then out, out and about. Right. And I believe he was involved in uh, that movie that came out about taking down Escobar, right? Right, and yes. He was at a bad helicopter crash, and not to divert from that, mm. but I was like, wow, I've, I've read his book, and this is Peter, so yeah. this is going to be great to learn from this, right? Totally. And you mentioned Robbie Gilmore, and Robbie Gilmore was a Canadian soldier that went and volunteered and joined the Rhodesian forces as well, mm. and Peter was his platoon sergeant. And there's a book, or in his book, there is Robbie Gilmore standing there doing paperwork yeah. after an attack, yeah. right? And I'm like, that's Robbie Gilmore. So as a young guy, I was 17 years old on my basic training here, Robbie was my platoon warrant on basic training. Mm. And I remember him telling the platoon that when you do this for real, this platoon or bat or organization, it'll fall apart. Mm. And it's not going to matter one section, two section, three section. It's going to be you group do this, you group do that. And this needs to happen now. Mm. And that stuck with me as a young 17 year old, wide eyed, listening to Robbie Gilmer. Mm -hmm. So bring it back to senior Brecken. Peter did his presentation talked about some of the, the, the bush fighting he did and the bush tactics. He really focused on that element, not anything else that sure. he did after, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end of his presentation, all the color sergeants were surrounded him. Right. And chatting. So I kind of like started to sneak between them. Yeah. Right. And I could see Peter looking at me and the color sergeants are looking at me like, okay, what's this guy doing? <laughs> and I just said, hey, sir. Uh, my name is Chase Budd and, and I'm from Canada and Robbie Gilmore was my old platoon warrant RSM at my regiment mm. and uh, his eyes lit up mm. and the connection and he's like, oh, like the connection was, it was really phenomenal to have that and he's like, how's Robbie doing? I said, well, you heard he's doing this and I heard he's doing that, yeah. doing well. He said, oh, that's great, great. Can you pass on my regards? Small world. Another shout out to Mark Lundy from the Seaforth here. And Mark got a message to Robbie saying, hey, Jace just met Peter at a presentation prior to going to Malawi. So cool. And, you know, it's very, and Robbie said that's a very small world, right? It totally is. Yeah. Small world, when you push yourself hard and you start working your way up the food chain, the number of people that you can look side to side, your peers will definitely start to, to narrow down. So, um, th- these are some, some bigger names and, um. Uh, in the world of professional soldiering. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Malawi. So two, three days prior to going to Malawi, we were still doing our our range training and it would be, it was snowing, sleet, wet. We're doing an attack range and I'm in a river and freezing. And then three days later, we are in Malawi, Africa, 55 above and raining. Yeah. 12 hours to climatize in the hangar, catch up sleep and you're out. But it's interesting before we went out, the Sergeant Major said, guys, I put a barrel of DEET in the, in your laundry room. So go dip your combats in <laughs> to go over to Malawi. Yeah. So I do it. And as I walk in, my eyes are burning from this DEET and I dip it in and I'm like, this can't be good. And I start doing research on DEET, ancient, o- agent orange, oh, yeah. And, yeah, all this stuff from Vietnam. Yeah. And, 
So I washed my combats about four times. After that? After that. Where a lot of guys just took it out, dried it. Like we're dipping it in barrels, job, right? Deet works awesome. Don't get it near plastic. It'll melt your oh, plastic. Oh, I know. I had a watch. Oh, did you? Back in the day, melt to my hand, right? Plastic watch, <laughs> the vacuum. Yeah. The old Timex. Uh-huh. Yeah, it melted to my hand. I woke up, put the deet on my hand. Yeah. So I washed that out. Um, they also put us on larium. Oh, really? Yeah. And it didn't work for me. Like they put us on about two weeks prior to going. Hmm. It did not work for me at all. Yeah. I was like the guy, I'd be standing on my cot or in my bunk in Brecon at 2 a.m. thinking I'm swat, bad dreams, swatting at birds in the room and stuff. The guy's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so I had to go off that. I went on this other, this other meds. We could probably talk about that. Yeah. Got another story. It's quite, the, the meds they put me on is quite funny. Yeah. But yeah. So then we, we end up in Malawi f- and the final exercise is four weeks. Okay. And it's uh, two weeks blank fire. Okay training and then two weeks live fire training. So it's pretty intensive final exercise. No kidding. And we're mostly working in our, in our platoons, doing patrols and, and, and attacks and deliberate patrols, fighting patrols. And then at the live fire, we start coming together more as a company and doing more company level mm-hmm. attacks and everything. Um, but I remember like one of the first few nights being in our harbor. And I think we talked about, we haven't done that podcast yet. We talked mm-hmm. about, about the, uh, the lions cir- circling the harbor right. at, at night. Yeah. And, um, there'd be like one rifle, one of the color sergeants would have one rifle with live rounds and that would be it in our group of 30, right? For example, but the heart, we had paraflares on the sentry positions mm-hmm. to fire at the lions if they got too close, but they're literally circling, circling our Just harbors, waiting. Right? Yeah. We, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we had lions and tasty deet smelling Brits and all types of things yeah. going on in, in Malawi. Um, one of the things that, that really stood out for me was prior to this, you know, training in the UK, we're very natal orders and natal broke breakdown of our platoons. But in, in Malawi, for example, when it's 55 above raining, that promotes the grass growing mm. and the grass is like six feet high. So they'd have these open areas called gambles and the gambles would be anywhere from one to 200 meters wide, depending even more. And then you have the forest blocks. Mm. So you might be tasked to clear the gambles, but you're not actually allowed to set foot in the gambles. Okay. So you have to orb out your platoon so that it's on either side of the gambles. So now traditionally we had the, the, we call it orbat, but it's the organizing your platoon, mm. you know, and a platoon would have the, the boss or the platoon commander with his group three rifle sections of eight guys, the section commander and a platoon sergeant's group. Mm. And that was like the standard NATO format, but that didn't necessarily work in Malawi because you needed to clear both sides of the gamble. Mm. So we would experiment with like, maybe you have the platoon commander's group, two sections on the right, platoon sergeant group and one section on the left. And you're, you're working on fire supporting each other, mm-hmm. but you'd be expected to clear the gamble without setting foot in it. Right. So you're clearing the woods beside it. And if you ever crossed, You'd, you'd fail your appointment. Auto fail. Yeah. You'd be yeah. automatically, you failed it. So that was really good. That was a really good teaching point for me was that, yeah, you follow the NATO format, but be flexible the way you organize your, your group. Mm-hmm. And this really became apparent for me in Afghanistan. Um, because I mentioned in the last podcast that I went out and was attached to Zulu company for five commando as a continuity NCO. Mm-hmm. NCO non-commissioned officer. Basically the, the British have a really good system where they put the incoming 
organization. Mm-hmm. They send some of the NCOs and officers yeah. to be on the ground and be as, as continuity. Right. The handover. So I think I mentioned like I had to learn the new 338 to teach our sniper debts. Right. Um, and then just learn the ground. And um, so I had already been on the ground. And by the time my platoon came down, uh, this was going to be one of their first operations okay. for them to go out this night into an ambush. Yeah. And the area we were in was called Garmazir. And there was a um, very static, robust, it was the furthest, uh, I believe is south that we could go to the Pakistan border. And they had that one hour, golden hour for the flight. So we weren't, it was mm. basically, the British weren't allowed to advance anymore because it'd be more than that one hour. So it was really dug in. Right. And the Taliban would use this area as a training area. Sure. So they were coming across from Pakistan and then they would train eight, eight or 10 days and they just bypasses in the desert. Mm. They bypass it down. But they, we had this like four kilometer frontage and there was a mound on one side called JTAC Hill and the Hellman River running that side. And then there was a canal on the left side, the four kilometers. It was an old Russian bunkhouse. Okay. And um, we are basically beefed it up. The engineers built it up to be a fighting fortification. So how we did our structure down in here as a company level, a platoon would man JTAC Hill and Belaclava checkpoint, we called this area. Okay. And half the platoon would go to one and the other half to the other. So platoon sergeant would go one and boss would take the other one. And I always ended up in Belaclava checkpoint, which is fine. Sure. Uh, and we'd be there for seven day cycle in our rotation. But what was happening was in the mornings, the Taliban would always come and, and I call it an ambush, but they would do a shoot on Belaclava every morning. Sure. So the company commander wanted to counter ambush us. So this is going to be one of the first big operation for this company, new company. Like I said, I've already been on down six weeks or as it was, so right. I'm pretty familiar with it. This was going to be one of the first operations for the company. And my platoon was a little later arriving too. So this is it. This is their first thing. So what was supposed to happen was one of the platoons was going to man the checkpoints. Another platoon was going to actually man the, the primary ambush site, the ambush, the Taliban. Right. That tries to ambush us. Right? Yeah. My platoon's job was to cross the canal, which actually was, um, the, our field engineers were going to put an empty footbridge in. Okay. So with our help, we're going to put this empty footbridge across the canal and then the ambush group would go to theirs. And, uh, we talked about JTAC Hill was a mound that the British made from one of the first Anglo-Afghan wars. Right. 150 years ago. Right. And it's probably a hundred meters high. Well, they made a bunch of these mounds and there was a couple other mounds now on the other side of the canal. One was 300 meters away called Little Brother. Okay. And then there was another one that was pretty big, probably as big as JTAC Hill. That was a hundred meters high. I think hundred meters high. I can't. It, sure. it, was a, it was a big mound yeah. called Taliban Hill. Okay. We call it Taliban Hill. Our job was to go to Little Brother okay. and protect the ambush site. That was our job. So we had, I believe, three rifle sections. We had a right, uh, fire support section. So mm-hmm. we had attachments from, you know, we had a couple of machine guns, snipers, anti-tank, all attached to this. And I had my group, platoon sergeant's group. I believe I had the 51 mortar. And um, I had a, a 
foldable stretcher that one of the big guys carry mm. in my group. So we would be doing the resupply and casualty evacuation if we needed it. Mm-hmm. And the platoon commander had, I believe he had a, um, some attachments. He had a couple engineers, uh, platoon signaler. So we had this big group. Trial, sure. Right. And then the platoon commander sets off, leading us out. So imagine now I'm, I'm going to be bringing up the rear. I'm doing the release point. And it's nighttime too. I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned that. So no, it's I was like going to ask. So this is middle yeah, of the night. Like 11 o'clock midnight, right? And this night is, vision. And this is when Taliban want to advance as well too. It's nighttime. No, they, they're probably coming in first lightish. Okay. Four. Okay. Right. We just need to be in position before four. That's the goal, right? Okay. 4 a.m. They didn't, they didn't really move. They like to move around too much at night. Okay. Without the night vision and everything. We did a lot of, most of our patrols were done at night. Mm. for us. They have us the advantage, right? They did a lot of their action was during the day I found. Okay. Or first light. First light, last light during the day. And then they hunkered down during the night. Just like hunting. Animals. We're all animals, I yeah. tell you. So as I'm setting off, Trav, I'm, I'm looking right and I'm like, oh, there's little brother and we're not going there. Oh no. And I see the platoon heading off the Taliban Hill, which is a kilometer away. Oh no. And I'm like, uh oh. And by this time, like I radioed up to the boss and 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 we just kind of adapt the plan and we're going to Taliban Hill. <laughs> so we're a kilometer <laughs> away. New plan. Yeah. Like it's kind of like um I think it's uh I think it was Hamburger Hill, that line, mm-hmm. like, you're in the wrong ambush site, or maybe platoon. But right. I'm like, that was in my mind. <laughs> like, we're in the wrong ambush site, right? Oh, um but so up they went. And the engineers were there to clear it because I know the Taliban in the past had put anti-personnel mines on the top and some of the Royal Marines got caught in that. And so engineers go up, they clear it and our guys go up. So I'm down in the bottom and I'm securing at the base of it. We call it the FRV or, or, uh, it's like a release point. Okay. So this is the rally point that everybody, they're going to come back to it. So I need to secure that. Mm. And our guys go up for the, for the night. Mm. Sure enough, 4 a.m., our guys, because the anti tank guys, we bring them with us because they have the um, the javelin site, which right. is, is thermal imaging, so they can actually see the Taliban moving. So mm-hmm. we can we we can see them moving into the ambush well before the actual ambush site. But they're coming from a different, I believe they're coming from a different area, and um, we got told to spring our ambush on the Taliban, so we did. And this happened around, you know, first light mm-hmm. or just still dark, right? They're just kind of moving. And traditionally, when you spring an ambush, you withdraw. Okay. But we didn't get the order to withdraw. So we held in position, I think, for another hour. I think I think what was happening, we were just, we were trying to feel out what was going on and right. maybe we can draw more Taliban in, right? Right. So by the time we got the order to withdraw, I think it's like 6 a.m. now. So we've been here a long time. And... Uh, and just prior to the order though, like think I could tell things were, were getting really tense. Right. And then I had one of my, um, one of the 51 mortarmen and, and then one of the stretcher dudes, um, doing rear security mm-hmm. said, Jace, Jace, there's a couple dudes here. And I go, what? It goes, a couple dudes here. And I, I look back I basically the grass, this field is shoulder height and we're all down. Mm-hmm. I stand up and I look and there's. I like to, I hope they're farmers, Trav. I don't know. Sure. But they were 50 meters, less than 50 meters away. And we both look at each other. Oh, and it was man. like, like 
you know, like, like deer in the deer headlights. headlights both ways. And it was like, <laughs> if they had anything that resembled a weapon, it would have been like over go. But yeah. I just thought, no farmers. And we both get down. And I think the farm, I think they were just nosy. Mm. What was going on? Maybe they're a recon party. I don't know. They didn't have any weapons, Jeez. but if they had a, anything, it would have been like yeah. go time for us. Right. But so now the order comes to withdraw and, um, and the platoon starts coming down. But prior to this, the platoon commander is like, Sergeant Bud, I need you to uh, plan a withdrawal route that doesn't go the way we came <laughs> for obvious reasons, sure. right? And I'm like, I sir, 400 meter run across the open field, get in the canal, and we go down the canal bank. Mm. Right? It's like, yeah, yeah. So I remember one of the snipers being one of the last off and he's like, they're coming. And the next thing I know, RPGs are landing indirect around us and, and, mm. and they fire the RPGs indirect fire. Right. Like in the air and creating a beaten zone, I guess. And they actually, far as I know, op- occupied little brother, which where we should have been where, on. Where you guys were supposed to <laughs> yeah. be. Yeah. So as this starts moving, right, the platoon commander already has half, I believe he had himself and maybe half the platoon with him in the open field, moving to the canal. We're just going like on, on a straight angle to it. And then I believe they opened fire, a small arms fire, PKM fire, 762 fire. Now is firing at us mm. in the open. I still have half the platoon with me in the FRV. And the boss had the other half platoon with him now. They actually made it through the open field. And then the other, wow. they're, they're across now. Yeah. And there, there was this like a, a four foot retaining wall at the canal. Mm. And they're there putting a, a fire support base in. And... Platoon separated now. Totally. And I know that like from our training that the Taliban can, can flank within 10 minutes. Mm. I'm like, we got to move. We got to get out of here. We got to move, move, move. And bear in mind, this is my platoon's first movement. And I'm just like, all right, guys, we're going to peel. Let's just start doing a big peel, fire maneuvering. And I don't know if they can't hear me, but nobody's moving. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I yell, everybody throw smoke. And nothing's happening. Oh, right? But I think we're spaced out and everything. Sure. And then, um, I'm like, you know what, Jay, if you get up and run, this is my mind. They're mm-hmm. all going to follow you. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. I got up and I started doing the 400 meter run across this open field. Yeah. And I, I, I can, I can hear the rounds and, yeah. and there was a section that was pit, like that was out in the open. They were ahead of me and Trav, I was moving so fast. I passed them and I have the tune sergeant radio. Jeez. Like I motored past this section. <laughs> And it was just like, nothing out worked. I'm like, they'll follow me, right? Yeah. We had a good fire support base coming in from the wall. Yeah. And I remember the f- like rounds hitting the wall yeah. as we dive over the wall and, and right below where the guys are firing back, right? And um, Jeez. would you believe, Trav, not a single guy got hit. Everybody got over the wall, got in. But the entire platoon now is mixed up. Right. And they're firing back. They're firing back little brother. So now we have like that, everything's gone and the platoon commander is trying to get a fire mission, but which a fire mission would be from the desert in, we had 105 guns mm. in the desert artillery support, but, um, he, and no fault of his own, but he was giving the wrong coordinates because he, he was mixing up little brother and Taliban Hill, right? Got it. Yeah. So he wasn't getting the fire mission. I'm like, boss, we got to move. We got to move. We got to move. 
and he wants to get this fire mission, which is which is fair. Let's mm-hmm. let's suppress. But I'm like, my concept is they're gonna get in the canal and enflate us, and we got to go. Right. So I like the platoon's gone, and in, in terms of the orbit, and it was basically you group here, fire support. You group are gonna move. You're gonna move first. Move now, right? And next group, you're next to move. And I just grabbed the boss and I put him in a group, and we just started doing this big fire maneuvering down this canal for probably a good kilometer. Right. The, boys, the boys nicknamed it the Mogadishu Mile, right? <laughs> so what was interesting as well, Trav, was that the Afghan police have a checkpoint in the, ma- in the middle of the town and they have a Sanger built on the top of their building. Okay. And they're probably 600, 700 meters away in the town. So a, a, a lesson learning here is that we should have had maybe an element there to control them. Mm. So they started firing at us as well oh, man. from that. And they don't know what they're firing at and they have right. iron sights and, you know, they're just firing. Yeah. So we didn't know we're actually getting where we're taking fire from, mm. but we were taking fire from both sides, they, the Afghan police and, and, uh, the oh, Taliban geez. from there. And we did this, uh, this basically fighting withdrawal yeah. down this, down this canal. And I kind of be the platoon sergeant. I, I called the regroup is where we get everybody back together about a hundred meters short of the, the company that was holding the empty footbridge for mm. us. Right. I didn't want to come in there looking like a big rabble. Right? <laughs> so I did an, I did a regroup, uh, you know, not really a reorg, but a quick regroup. Right. We got everybody back now into our one section, two section, three section boss, platoon sergeant's group. And I had the boss go first and lead it in. And the, the concept was, we, so we looked pretty professional coming through. Sure. I didn't want this big, <laughs> this big Mogadishu mile coming through the, the company checkpoint, right? And a good team player as well. Yeah. And then, you know, handed it back. Sure. And off we go across, right? Yeah. So that, that was, um, that was a le- lesson that I, I learned from Robbie Gilmore is that when you do this for real, it's not going to matter one section, two section, three section. That's mm. great if you can keep that integrity, but often it's going to fail and it's you group do this and you group do that, you know? Yeah. And Trav as well, I have to carry you off there. Yeah. I realized why we do that two mile run <laughs> when full kit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, this is, who runs down a road like, like an idiot with 35 pounds on and, and in 21 minutes, right? Jeez. In full gear. It totally, totally makes sense. I, yeah. I know why we do it. <laughs> in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. Any future soldier, current soldier, yeah. this is why you do it. Yeah. That's why we did it. You know, Jason, every time I speak with you, there's always some great stories and I always get some greater insight into you as a person. And the more that, uh, you share with everybody else, you know, the, I really respect what you're doing. I mean, it, it takes a lot to be able to sit down and, and talk about these stories and talk about the transition from military into civilian life and sort of the next steps. And I, I think you should write a book or you should, uh, you should probably get your own podcast at some point. You know, Trav, when maybe, you know, it's interesting you talk about this. I was, re- I was listening to a podcast on the way over and the one thing I really enjoy our times together is how much we laugh. Mm. And one thing in the UK that, that really stands out is the British sense of humor. Right. And times are tough. They have a black sense of humor and everything else. And, and this is podcast I, I was listening to was talking about mental health during the pandemic right? and how it's suffering. And they were talking about PTSD and everything else. Sure. But one thing that they said, you know, one of our, our stress reflexes, one of the way we can manage it is laughter, mm-hmm. right? 
And, and the British are really big for it, banter. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful because too much banter becomes criticism and picking on people. But sure. But that's one thing I really appreciate with us is that we have a lot of fun and laughs doing these podcasts. And, and I think that's really important. And I think you hit on, you know, some of the areas that I would like to go down the road. And it might be writing my memoirs. A lot of people have said that. Um, and relating it to my journey, my journey back here, my journey in the fire service, my journey with my own struggles with mental health mm-hmm. um, and how the outdoors has, has nurtured and, and helped me heal and, you know, how much passion I have for adventure therapy. Right. You know, so yeah, you know, Trav, like I, I wouldn't mind doing um, a podcast down the road that it may be geared towards adventure therapy. Who knows, you know? Well, why don't we ask the listeners? If anyone's listened all the way to the end here and they want to hear about adventure therapy and the journeys from the military through fire to civilian life and dealing with the struggles and mental health, let us know and we'll, we'll do that podcast. If you're game, I'm totally game. Yeah, for sure, Chop. Okay. Yeah, more time to laugh and. I love it. Spend some time with you. Well, Jason, thank you very much for coming back on the Silverville podcast. I really appreciate it.